A soul needs graduations and new possibilities, an opportunity to explore the unknown and what is uncertain and learn new things. A soul needs mystery. Our scripture passage today is from Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul finds himself on trial in Athens. He is alone and under investigation from members of the Areopagus. These are the senior members of the council in Athens. They are the gray beards of Mars Hill. In the year 399 BC, Socrates was tried in Athens for corrupting the young and introducing new gods. Even though this is more than four centuries before Paul is in Athens, he knows this story, and we are to know the story and the similarities as well. Paul is under some amount of pressure for proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. Scripture passage is from Acts 17, beginning with verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus, and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is indeed a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A little over a year ago, during a trip to Washington, D.C., I stood on the steps of the Supreme Court building. We took selfies, and we admired the majesty of the building. It was fun and interesting and even relaxing to be there. But I imagine I would have felt differently if I were on the steps of the Supreme Court to attend a trial, my own trial. N.T. Wright says that's what, what is most impressive about Acts chapter 17 is not the debate of philosophy, but that Paul is acquitted in Athens. And he walks away from the Areopagus where serious offenses are tried, he, and he walks on to Corinth. Wright says Paul's crime 
just might have been that he is preaching in the streets of Athens new gods, Jesus and his consort, Anastasis. That's the Greek word for resurrection. And what we have in these 10 verses in Acts 17 is a synopsis of what Paul would have said, probably not the entirety of what he said. Given a chance to speak in the highest court of the land, Paul probably would not speak for two minutes, but instead something more like two hours. This is a story, a brief story of an ordeal, but in it, we find some important guide posts for living out the life of faith. You see, Paul is a man who's steeped in Jewish thought and tradition. When he writes to the Philippians, he calls himself a Jew among Jews. And we can hear, we can hear Jewish influence as he describes one creator God who is working continually and linearly to set all things right. But Paul is also a Roman citizen from Tarsus, which makes him a philosopher among philosophers. Tarsus was one of the main centers of philosophy in the ancient world, and Paul is then familiar with Greek thought and Greek philosophy, and this shows up as he references Athenian architecture and two lines of Greek poetry. He says, in him we move and live and have our being, and for we too are his offspring. But possibly most important in this passage and this story, Paul is a detective among detectives searching for God. In his biography on Paul, Wright suggests that what we have here is Paul looking an awful lot like Sherlock Holmes, saying to senior investigators, your theories about the crime, well, they all make some sense, but you're missing the overall framework. It's been under your noses the whole time, but you haven't seen it. Once you do see it, it'll solve the whole thing. This overall framework is important for us, too. It helps us to get the most out of life. Paul sees in Athens, he sees numerous temples and shrines and idols. The Parthenon would have been the largest. A temple built to celebrate the goddess Athena after a victory over the Persians. But there were smaller shrines as well, like the ones to Nike and Jupiter. The operating wisdom for the Athenians was that the gods were unknown and controlled. Unknown because they weren't to be disturbed, not to be bothered, not to be related to, only placated. We give them what they want and they leave us alone. But Paul flips this operating principle. He turns it on its end. He says it's not unknown and controlled gods, but it's one known and uncontrollable god. One known and uncontrolled God. The words begin in verse 35. God gives to all mortals life and breath and existence so that we would search, we would grope for God and find God. You and I can very much know and experience God. But God is not to be restricted or contained. Our experience of God is not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing relationship. This can make the life of faith difficult because the divine is unpredictable. This requires my focus. 
I like certainty and recognizable form and formulas that work. It's a fine way to make dinner, follow a recipe, but it's no way to grow spiritually. I get stuck. Truth be told, it's no way to be in any relationship, detached and controlling. I can tell when I'm stuck in a relationship with anyone that I love. I start using some version of the word should. He should do this. She shouldn't do that. It's imperative that I do this today or I absolutely should not do that. I'm finding the temptation to lean into rigidity to be especially hard, especially tempting now in a time of uncertainty. You know, I wake up a lot of mornings with heavy shoulders. Another day of work and school from home, I know what it's like. I know what it should be like. I know the bad news that's weighing on me and the schedule that we should keep in our home. But there is a better way. Susan Beaumont is a church consultant who long before this pandemic taught about uncertainty. And she taught about uncertainty in terms of the church, the larger global church. She says, we are living through a time that is a threshold time, a liminal space. It's an in-between time, like graduation. An in-between time, an uncertain time, but it's also a time of possibility. But we never get to the new thing that God has for us if we don't get comfortable with uncertainty, if we don't move from knowing to unknowing. And unknowing is not ignorance. Unknowing is basically a stance of wonder. It's a stance of curiosity. It's engaging the mystery, being curious about what God is about. The better way is a place of wonder. It's greeting the day with a sense of curiosity and openness to possibilities because any time of uncertainty is a time of opportunity. Paul preaches in verse 27, so that they, and I would say we, so that we would search for God, perhaps grope for him and find him. Though God is not far from each one of us, we search and we grope and we find God. It can be done because God is not far from any one of us. Richard Rohr teaches that the Franciscan brothers of the Catholic Church have two basic principles. One is to keep God free for people, and the second is to keep people free for God. And we keep people free for God because we believe, we know, we have experienced that God can use anything, anything, sin and brokenness and failure, anything. God can use anything to bring us to God. Toward the end of the passage, in verse 30, are the words, God commands all people everywhere. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And then I'll paraphrase this last part, because God has fixed a righteous judge, not unrighteous judges like those who sit on the Areopagus, a righteous judge, Jesus, who resurrects who uses everything. 
There's something that about, about this particular passage that I think gets overlooked. And that is that Paul throughout his preaching uses the words all and we and each one. The good news is good news for every single one of us. As Parker Palmer taught in the video earlier, it's to our great benefit to embrace the possibility of the stranger. We are called into the mystery of the faith not to, to be able to force our angle on the faith on other people, but to bring them in and to hear a new angle on the good news and receive a bigger picture than we can get on our own or we can get with people just like us. You see, Paul and the early Christians have a record of doing this in the earliest church, adding one more and adding one more and adding one more. And Acts chapter 17 tells us that Paul does add one or two more while he's in Athens to the resurrection faith. Among them is a man named Dionysius, who's a member of the Areopagus, and he becomes a saint of the Eastern Orthodox Church adding one more to gain a greater and stronger faith. My Southern Baptist grandmother was influential in forming my own faith because I, I watched her live it out in front of me. I had a front row seat to her faith. But she was also someone who, when I told her I was applying to seminary, said, Dinah, you can't do that. You're a woman. Women don't preach. But you know what? Over the course of a few weeks, maybe a month or so, I got to watch my grandmother change her mind. She sat down and she told me, I've changed my mind. You should go to seminary. And changing our minds is basically repenting. The fancy theological word for changing our mind, changing our way is to repent. We don't just do it once, but we do it throughout the course of faith. Repentance, Paul says, is for all of us at many different times. Changing our minds, changing our ways as we live out our faith, it is for everyone everywhere. And I'm thankful. I need that opportunity to continue to grow and change. Everyone, everywhere, the chance to repent. Let it be. Amen.